0: This is Mornings with Silly on 980 CKNW.
1: All right, let's talk about our pandemic right now. You know, we've largely been guided by health officials in this here in BC. We talk a lot about Dr. Bonnie Henry and of course, right across the country, we hear often from Dr. Teresa Tam. Well, now the Public Health Agency of Canada has published this annual report that they do looking at the state of public health. Yes, in the middle of the pandemic too. And one of the things that they really emphasize in this report is that the recovery from the pandemic should be as equal as possible and that perhaps in the recovery process, there is like an opportunity maybe to help people maybe equalize things a a little bit. And we had a chance to talk to Dr. Teresa Tam about that. Well, Dr. Tam, thank you so much for joining us this morning. First of all, can you talk about the concern that you have right now? When you look across the country and see the numbers, how worried are you about where we are right now?
2: Well, I think... um Not just myself, but other medical officers of health um, across the country are concerned with the resurgence. Uh, Many uh, areas in Canada um, have uh, community transmission and with an escalation of cases. Uh, It's not the same across the whole country, but on the whole, uh, most provinces, um, except for those in the Atlantic region, are experiencing some significant uh, resurgence.
1: One of the things that you're talking about right now is the process of the pandemic recovery and making sure it is equitable and equal right across the country. Do you have concerns that in the recovery process it won't be equitable across the country? Well,
2: I think this pandemic to date has jolted our consciousness into recognizing that not everyone is impacted in the same way in Canada from the the start of this panic to now and that equity is vital uh, to ensuring the success in uh, managing the pandemic all the way to recovery and beyond. So what I mean is that the pandemic, as it stands, um, is much worse for seniors, uh, some essential frontline service workers, um, health workers, racialized populations, people living with certain disabilities and women. And so uh, recognizing that some of these populations are um, differentially impacted because of social and economic and other conditions, uh, we have a lot to do to ensure that they get the support they need. Because in the end, this virus transmits in invisible ways. And um, until um, everyone is protected, no one is protected In recovery, I think we have lots of lessons that we can learn. But the bottom line is building resilience in our communities and as individuals. And that can really only be done not just from the health sector, but the social and economic uh, sector and the supports that need to be provided uh, to many in society that are disadvantaged at the moment.
1: So you're saying we could use the pandemic recovery to provide those supports. And what kind of supports are you talking about?
2: You, you hit the nail on the head. I think COVID 19 is an unprecedented event and it should serve a ma- as a massive catalyst for collective action. It's a whole of society response. You've seen it. It's not just a health response, it is uh, a response that uh, includes support, for example, for people with precarious employment who don't have any sick leave. You don't have any sick leave and your job is precarious you're going to work when you're sick because you have no choice um you may have to work in different places all of these leads to increased um virus transmission and um people in crowded uh living conditions people who are homeless um, so i think uh, also have increased risk because of of we know this part, you know we we talk about all of us physical distancing having hygienic measures, wear a mask, well, some people can't do that as well Mm -hmm. as others. Um, And so I think some some of the support is about um, ensuring um, the um, area of, um, you know, wages and and equity. Um, The other um, supports that we have to sort of recognize is for... um, you know, housing, as I just said, mm-hmm. education, all of these things increases the resilience of our community.
1: Do you believe in a mask mandate?
2: It depends what you mean by mask mandate. We've been uh, recommending the wearing of non-medical masks um, and as science evolved and we knew that people could transmit if uh, even if they're asymptomatic, which is why uh, many more jurisdictions um, have really not just strongly recommended But, uh, the Atlantic provinces, just as an example, has mandated the wearing of uh, masks in uh, public spaces. Depends, again, I am really stressing, um, that the population needs to be behind it. There needs to be social cohesion. Mandates can help. Um, i 've just been talking to some of the my colleagues in different jurisdictions they They have very different realities that they 're working with in their population. They know their population best, and in some the mandated uh, wearing a mask actually has really helped compliance and without a lot of enforcement at law, the population um, was was very um, very team to get behind this, and it made life a lot easier. People knew exactly what they had to do right. and so I also already know though that through public opinion surveys that um, you know over three quarters and maybe over eighty percent male of people support the wearing of masks in uh, public spaces and when they're not with their families, uh, the immediate health of contact. so I think the population Um, now knows uh, what to do to protect each other and uh, in order to protect themselves.
1: What do you think then about what BC has done during this? Is there more we could be doing?
2: Well, I think everybody can do, can always do more when it's such a massive uh, uh, public health event. Um, I would say it's not just British Columbia. I think British Columbia has, has some very good best practices or can learn from protecting the, as I said, Protecting those that are most vulnerable, and there's some great examples, including in British Columbia, as I said, protecting long-term care facilities, um, which includes not just infection prevention control in uh, in these settings, um, you know, screening, rapid testing, managing outbreaks quickly and be able to protect um, uh, the residents, but also support for um, the workers, the personal support workers who are often low-wage, women mm-hmm. in racialized communities, in congregate living settings. Mm-hmm. They need support in many different ways. So that has been learned. I hope that every jurisdiction um, really protect these settings, but there are also seniors living outside of those settings that need to be supported as well. and. I also think that um, you know we have to be careful because now winter people can 't be outside as much, so I think uh, again, emphasizing um, bringing the population along with uh, developing sustainable habits
3: mm-hmm.
2: i think of of the, the basic measures everybody is needing to do more in this space in terms of communications, communication, communication, doing better at targeting different populations using some behaviour insights. But, you know, it, it's going to be a, a number of months ahead. Um, so developing these habits um, is really important so that everybody can keep up with the uh, public health, individual public health measures. While uh, balancing, uh, it's a bit like a delicate balancing act where public health is balancing the type of um, uh, you know population-based measures, uh, including gathering sizes, for example, mm-hmm. with uh, the social and economic impacts. And it's a really difficult balance, because if you get it wrong, then community transcription occurs, and uh, it's very difficult then for public health to manage. So, so I think, as every public health officer has emphasised, uh, keep your gathering size small in areas where there's lot um, community transmission. Stick to your household um, contacts as much as possible, um, and you know, wash your hands, physical distancing, wearing masks. Because it actually is really important. Public health has increased its capacity, but it can't keep up if everybody has many, many contacts when when they um,
1: contract the virus. Well, Dr. Tam, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much for your interest. That is Dr. Teresa Tam, of course, Public Health Officer of Canada. You've been seeing a lot of her in 2020.
0: This is Mornings with Simi
1: check in with our Nikki Reitmeyer this morning and she's got some advice for us about Halloween because Nikki, really, we shouldn't be gathering.
4: Yeah, this is what we're hearing, of course, right? And I know that we're going to be talking to Dr. Bonnie Henry on the show today, just after the 7 o'clock news, and I'm sure she's going to reiterate the same thing. We shouldn't be having Halloween parties this year. So I hope that most people respect that rule and keep to very small numbers, or perhaps they find something outdoors they can do instead. Maybe they're going to find a way to go safely trick-or-treating. I saw one of those candy slides in my neighborhood. I was so excited. I almost took a picture of it.
1: (laughs) I thought you and I could just take a little walk on Saturday evening evening uh, and go around nice. the neighborhood and just see, and that way we can talk about it on Monday, too. We can just kind of see what people are doing. There's a lot of houses on my street that are decorated to the max. Like Really? Lot. Oh, yes.
4: See, my street, there's usually a few houses and they really go all out. And this year, I noticed they didn't really do it as much. I was kind of wondering if maybe people weren't as excited this year because of everything that's happened. But I'm glad to see that there's still some people out there that are really getting in the spirit.
1: That's true. But there's a few things people can do, right? Outside, safely.
4: Yeah, there's a few things I've noticed that are outside that people can do. You can do the tours at Fort Langley, the grave tours there and this, masks are required for it and you have to dress for the weather because it is mostly outside and I think this always sounds so exciting. It's Something I've wanted to do every year is go do the ghostly tours at Fort Langley so that's still happening this year. If uh, you want to go a bit further out to Abbotsford, Man Farms are doing their haunted corn maze. Again, this is something that is outside. You're being asked to purchase tickets in advance for most of these events that are happening. So keep that in mind. You'll want to go to these websites in advance and make sure that you're following all the rules for COVID safety. And then there is one indoor event that I noticed happening at the Giggle Dam Theatre in Port Coquitlam. It's called Vancouver Horror Nights, and you do sort of a haunted tour that's supposed to be quite scary, actually. I think there's one for adults and one for kids that's happening. But keep in mind that this is an indoor event. So if you're not really comfortable being inside, even though they are following COVID regulations, and it's something that you may want to leave off the list
1: and I do think people should also check these online because a lot of them you probably you might have to book a time in advance right so they don't yes. get overcrowded.
4: Yes, exactly. A lot of these events that have been happening, I've noticed, have rules where they want you to go online first. They want you to buy your tickets in advance so that you're not lining up when you're on site. They want you to book a time in advance. So again, they're not seeing these big clusters of people forming. So it's always a good idea if you hear about an event that you go check out their website first and find out what you need to know, especially if they have any rules for COVID-19 in place that maybe you wouldn't expect because you hadn't seen them somewhere else. Most places, though, are recommending masks. Some are even requiring them. Good. That's good to know. Okay, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi.
1: See you Saturday night. You betcha. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer there with a few places that you can check out if you'd like to. But remember, check everything online first to make sure that you are being properly accommodated because they probably have some rules that you need to follow, whether it's the Fort Langley Grave Tours or the Man Farms, Corn Maze in Abbotsford. Uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's hope that everything goes well and safely and distance this weekend.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I don't know if you've heard, and I'm being sarcastic here, but there's an election happening next week in the United States. I feel like that's all that has been talked about down there for the last you know, two years, and definitely it has ramped up even more so in the last couple of months. And here we are now at the final weekend before Tuesday's official voting day although tens of millions of Americans have already voted. But we thought let's get an update on how things are going. Joining us now is Leonard Steinhorn, a CBS News political analyst. Leonard, thank you for being here.
0: Happy to be here. Thanks.
1: Now, I'd like to think that once Tuesday's vote is done, we're going to talk less about this. But do you get that impression in the United States?
0: Oh, my. Look, we wake up every morning to a water cannon of news, uh, try to digest it. Um, and it may keep going after Election Day because we may not know who wins. And even if it seems, let's say, that one candidate wins, Joe Biden, uh, it's not altogether clear uh, that President Trump will accept the election results. There may be legal battles It may go to the Supreme Court. There may be challenges to uh, ballots that arrive after election day even if they've been postmarked by election day so there's all sorts of chaos that could ensue and obviously if there's a new administration coming in we'll all be talking about what that means for the change and what might happen in the next couple of months before president trump uh, leaves office even though he has balked at committing to a peaceful transfer of power so This stuff isn't going away, even though it's at high fever pitch right now. Um, We become a very highly politicized country. And even though we're fatigued by it, um, the news just keeps flowing out of that water cannon.
1: And I love the way you put that water cannon of news every morning. So what the last couple of days of this campaign, what does that tell us, do you think, about what the thinking is for each of the campaigns?
0: Well, Joe Biden has more uh, chess pieces on the board right now. There are a lot of states that he can put together to be able to win this thing. But here's the thing. When you look at Donald Trump's map from 2016, he has the Electoral College equivalent of House money. And what I mean by that is he can lose 36 Electoral College votes and still win the presidency. So what he's trying to do is to hold on to as many states that he won in 2016. And he can afford to lose a couple. Um, He can conceivably, for example, afford to lose Florida, which is a big state, and he can afford to lose, let's say, Iowa. And when you combine those two together, that 's about thirty five electoral college votes that still keeps him above two hundred and seventy, but he 's playing defense in a lot of these states because the polls at least are suggesting that Joe Biden is ahead now again, we know the problems with the polls they 're not exactly perfect. they were flat out wrong in two thousand and sixteen but if you give the polls any credibility here, the president is playing defense in all of those states but he can afford to lose a couple and still win the White House, even if he loses the popular vote by anywhere from four to 10 million votes. Um, So this is where this becomes a game of strategy. Does Joe Biden try, which states does Joe Biden try and emphasize to pick off and pull back into the blue column this year? So Joe Biden has to think strategically about what are the most likely states to move toward him to get him to 270 electoral college votes or more. So that's how they're all thinking through the strategy behind this campaign.
1: Right. And a lot of this has become legal strategy as well, hasn't it? Because it sounds like the, the Trump campaign in particular is very concerned about the, the early voting, the advanced voters and how those ballots get counted and when they get counted. And are the rules are what, different state by state?
0: Oh, it's a crazy quilt patchwork of states on all of this. And the Supreme Court is issuing rulings allowing some states to accept ballots uh, that were postmarked by Election Day after Election Day. Uh, other states not to do that. And in some of the uh, opinions in which they've allowed some states to do it, saying it's too late to change things, a couple of justices justices have left open the possibility that they would rethink this after the election. So once again, you know, we're in a state of chaos uh, in a situation where, you know, what we like to call ourselves this great democracy, but our voting system is an absolute mess. There are inconsistencies. People go crying to the courts all the time, if they feel that they're not going to get what they want. Um, We don't have any national standards on this. Uh, Each state does its own thing. Some states are far more prepared to deal with all of these mail-in ballots than others, But some aren't. And that could be another source of chaos and confusion as we move toward Election Day and thereafter. So, yeah, this could end up in the courts. People can challenge things. Um, And uh, then there's the issue of even if they don't challenge ballots coming in after Election Day, what about those ballots getting counted that did come in uh, on time? For example, do signatures match. Did people in some states where it's required include copies of their photo I.D.? Did people in some states get a witness to be able to sign the ballot and send that in? Did they put it in a secrecy envelope in some states? If you don't do any of those things in some states, those ballots could be discounted, oh, even though you intended to vote.
1: It's like the hanging chads all over again. Leonard, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's Leonard Steinhorn, a CBS News political analyst, talking about the upcoming election in the United States. That will be Tuesday But I have a feeling they'll be going on and on and on with the counting and the examining well into next week. I'm sure we'll be talking about it too. This is Mornings with Simi. For nine days now, we have recorded COVID-19 cases above the 200 number threshold. And that had not happened for months and months and months right up until October the 21st. So the message that we heard yesterday from health officials Time to say no to parties, to events in indoor settings. Just some of the precautions that Dr. Bonnie Henry would like us to take, particularly this weekend, this Halloween weekend. And Dr. Bonnie Henry joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning and thank you for joining us.
5: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: Are you a little worried about what might go on this weekend?
5: Um, y- y- you know what? I think most people in BC are uh, aware of the challenges that we're facing and understand the risks that we have um so a little worried but you know i think we can have a very safe halloween we can celebrate with young people we can um, do things that make it a special day without putting people at risk
1: and so in your mind and in, in, when you picture it what does that look like for people what should they and should they not be doing
5: So the things I'm most concerned about are are the adults having parties because that's where we have seen transition. So let's make it a special day for for kids. I think doing outdoor things like uh, small groups, trick-or-treating in the neighbourhood, setting it up ahead of time so everybody's um, prepared and planned to have small groups around. And there's some really cool things that I know people are doing to, to make it safe, whether it's candy tubes or hockey sti- sticks or, uh, I have a friend who's, uh, with her kids are setting it up on a, a clothesline with little, uh, alligator clips. And, oh, you know, cheers. there's lots of neat things that we can do. And, and I also think we can do things around the home with kids. And, I uh, I know another family where they have, uh, um, It's a multifamily home and they're having all the kids uh, go to each door and the adults are having something different at each door in the home. You know, these are the things that we can do to make it fun and special and
1: small. Right. And you're saying essentially you're saying focus on the kids and adults. You're just going to have to take a seat on this one.
5: Yeah, take a seat, or just have a small group—your close friends, your close family, your household—and uh, do something like watch a scary movie, or you know, just have a a small. This is not the year to have those big parties that we um, so enjoy. And if we take the make that sacrifice this year, you know, next year is going to be that much special.
1: When we say small groups, how many people are you actually talking about here? Ideally, what kind of numbers?
5: You know, it, it is a very challenging thing. And we what we have said is, you know, have your safe six. We've been talking about that for a little while. You know, that same group of people that you are close with, that you still maintain your, your distances and some of the barriers. So the household, the people that you live with are the ones that you can hug. And then you have a small group of people that you have connections with. Um for some people, that will be too much. And right now, in some parts of the lower mainland in particularly, we know there's quite a lot of this virus circulating and that's why we're seeing these high numbers. And it is people inadvertently bringing it in. So if you know somebody, if there's somebody in your family, your community, that, uh, or you're in an area where you know that uh, the virus is high, just keep to your household right now. And we know that in some communities and some families, we have large, multi-generational households. And that means that more people are at risk, and particularly older people who we know have a a higher probability of getting really sick with this virus. And and unfortunately, we're seeing some of that. We're starting to see people being hospitalized again. So we need to take a step back and protect those that we love.
1: You've had a lot of groups as well, Dr. Henry, asking you to make masks mandatory, to have that that public health mandate for mask wearing. Is your thinking changing on that at all?
5: Uh, no, you know, we have evolved in our understanding of the role of masks and, you know, they are an important tool and the, the data, the scientific data absolutely suggests that they are an additional measure. So we can't um, you know, can't wear a mask and not have to worry about uh, keeping our distance and minimizing the number of people in a grocery store, et cetera, et cetera. It's in a, a mask on top of those other measures can protect us, particularly for those situations where we can't always keep our distances. And, you know, transit is a really important one. Uh, um, in places where we might have to stand in close contact with people for a short period of time. And going to a healthcare facility, absolutely, we need to wear masks. So, there are situations where it's really important for us to wear masks. And uh, there's um, good evidence that shows that we get just as much compliance by helping people understand the rationale and making sure that the masks are available for people. And that's the focus that we're going to
1: have. Now, it sounds like you're saying that really, the mask should be the last thing that you do, you would prefer it if everybody did everything else first. Whereas I think for a lot of people, they want to be able to do what they normally do, but also wear a mask.
5: That's exactly right. And the mask doesn't take the place of those important things that we need to do that we know work as well. It's an additional layer, an additional tool that we have. So it's We talk about the Swiss cheese model. So if all else fails, the mask is there too. But it doesn't take the place of keeping our distance, keeping our groups small, um, minimizing the number of people, following those one-way lines in the grocery store. Those are all things that help us right Right. now when we know that this virus is out there still.
1: But it also sounds, I think a lot of stores have no longer do that. Like I've seen stores where there no longer are lines about which way you go in the grocery store because I think they feel like, well, people are wearing masks now.
5: Yeah, and so we have been working with WorkSafe and putting a message out there and I've talked to um, to businesses about this. No, the COVID safety plans, we need to revisit those, make sure that we still have those things in place that keep our staff safe too. And uh, we we've seen in some businesses that we've had transmission often between staff because they think they're okay when they're together, um, whether it's in the lunchroom right. or carpooling to work. And so we need to rethink and remember that we're going into the you know cough and cold season uh, where there are going to be people with the sniffle. So this is making sure that we go back to those basics again, revamp those plans, think about it, and make sure that masking is a part of it.
1: Are you? Do we need to do a better job? Do you think, uh, public health-wise, of reaching out into communities and explaining these rules? I mean, there was a lot of discussion about what was going on in Surrey, in particular. Does the message need to get stronger and better?
5: Yeah, you know that's uh, that's a very good point. Um, we're always challenged, and, and it is a it's. It's a difficult thing because it is very much, um, there. there's basics that we all need to follow, but it's so much dependent on our own situation, and, and that is a hard message. Uh, so if we live in a large family, then we should be pulling back on some of the other things, That is somebody who lives alone and doesn't have any elderly people in their lives right now, it may be okay to go to the gym, but it may not be okay for me to go if I live with my grandparents and aunties. There are some personal nuances about it, but the basics are there. We need to, to minimize our social interactions, stay away from those situations that we know this virus thrives in, and that's being indoors, and in crowded spaces, talking to people, and especially, you know, we've been doing this for a long time now. It feels hard, and when we see people that we haven't seen in some time, we want to be able to have that connection, and right now, we need to protect them by by keeping our distance and making sure we connect
1: in ways that are safe. Are you worried about Christmas?
5: You know, I'm I'm looking forward to Christmas, and I think you know we need to find ways um, to support each other to have that sense of community that we all need. There's many other celebrations and um, important events coming up. We know that there's November 11th is an important, for of course, yeah. Uh, Diwali is coming up. Um, and then, of course, yeah, Christmas and Hanukkah and other celebrations. So now our time to start thinking about how to do that safely. But right now, we need to focus on bending the curve today because that is what is going to get us through these next few months and uh, make sure that we can have a safe Christmas.
1: Dr. Henry, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Dr. Bonnie Henry, of course, B.C.'s Chief Medical Health Officer, talking about the ways in which we need to be safe.
0: This is Mornings
1: with Simi. Let's get our next guest on to share some more creepy tales from Vancouver history with us. Aaron Chapman is with us, historian and author of the book Vancouver After Dark. Hi, Aaron.
3: Hi, Simi. How are you?
1: I am good. Thank you. Do you love a good spooky story?
3: Oh boy, do I ever! I I, uh, I, I I've i never seen a ghost though. I don't know. Have have you ever seen a ghost before?
1: I haven't seen a ghost, but are you telling me that you've never had a moment where you thought maybe there was something? Oh in the sure, room? I mean,
3: there's everybody has those moments where the, the you know the chill goes up your spine. And yes, whatnot, and uh, and gosh, this city is full of uh, stories like that.
1: I know. Let's hear about some of them. So, what are your favorites?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting because there's there's haunted places all over BC from Chilliwack to Victoria, but right here in the Lower Mainland. There are some really well-known ones. Probably the, the best well-known one is, is, the, is the lady in red at the Fairmont Hotel Vancouver there, um, who is a sort of a mysterious woman. She's actually, they believe they know who it is, um, this, this mysterious woman who, who uh, travels around the hotel and, and has been seen as a sort of a ghostly apparition uh, appearing here and there before. She was a, a longtime resident at the hotel um, by the name of Jenny Pro Cox, who was killed in a car accident on the Stanley Park Causeway. And ever since then, when she this accident happened in 1944, ever since then apparently she's appeared in this red dress and, and been seen all over the hotel. And is somewhat of a benevolent ghost by all, all accounts uh, and, and whatnot. But you know, there's so many other places. The, the old spaghetti factory down in Gasparilla. The water. water I've front done station. this one.
1: I've done this yeah. one.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable uh, to 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 hear all the places and whatnot that uh, that are haunted over the one of the one of the most. One of the most haunted places, apparently, is the Vogue Theatre. Really? Uh, right down on Granville there. And I've been and out of the Vogue, Vogue Theatre many times, playing shows or, or, or backstage whatnot, and I've never seen anything like that. But I know, I've spoken to some stagehands that have worked there, and they have seen stuff that has literally, they'll never go back and work there again because they're so scared of it, seeing something like that again. Uh, the most common stories that happen there are often seeing a face um, you know, there, there have been actors on stage and musicians on stage that have seen a face up in the old projection room, really? um, in the top of the theater that's just disappeared. Or there was, there was even a musical going on there once and a, and a, a ghost was seen in the wings, um, by one of the actors. And they thought it was only discovered later. There was nobody there, but there, this, this actor had was certain that somebody was there. Freaky. But one of the, one of the two most sort of really bone chilling stories, Comes from a stagehand that I spoke to, who was uh, one of his colleagues was going up into the rigging, uh, going up a very high ladder. Now the rigging is above the stage there, very high up, um, where the ropes and the lights are. We get up there, to that very, very top, It's really unseen by the by the stage, and it requires getting up a sixty a, a foot tall ladder to get to get up there. Mm-hmm. And as the stagehand was going up, right behind his ear, he heard a voice that just was whispering repeatedly, "Be careful! Be careful! Be careful! Be careful!" And he was so he was so frightened. He threw off his tool belt and came down a ladder and thought somebody had been playing a joke on him. Uh, he was That's so freaking. he was so frightened of it. Yeah, and 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 another on another occasion, a guy who was also up in that, that that sort of top part of the theater felt like he was being watched, and just felt a chill go up his back. and turned around, and there was a face uh, that, right in front of him, just a face that just disappeared in a mist, and he freaked out and. The Screamed and everybody came running to find out what, he, what had happened. But yeah, that the Vogue, right one. on Gravel Street, it's one of the most haunted places.
1: I had not heard those. Like the Old Spaghetti Factory one, I love it, you know, Aaron, when a place leans into it, right? Like yes. the Fairmont Hotel Vancouver leans into it. They'll give you a little printout where they'll tell you the whole story and, and the oh, whole sure. thing about that. Old Spaghetti Factory, I also was there for a family dinner just a couple of years ago. And <laughs> when we heard what it was, that it's way in the back and it's like almost like a, like a dead spot where it just is... Just there's no ventilation or anything right there, but it's freezing cold. If you just go <laughs> and, everybody at my by table got up and went to the back to go <laughs> to go and check it out. And you know what? Eager to see it. I yeah. would say that a couple of them definitely agreed with that assessment.
3: Wow. Well, at the, at the old spaghetti factory, of course, there's that old uh, Vancouver streetcar yes. that's in the back, and there's often been uh, people who have said that they've seen the ghost of the old, of an old conductor that sat there, oh. or has, or has even called out people's names. Uh, when it's been quiet at night, uh, that's been come from that area. So, yeah, it's an odd—that's another odd place there as well.
1: I guess we would expect that, right? Like that's what happens in cities as they get older and older. Do people just send these stories to you? How do you hear about them?
3: Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've put I've often put out feelers for this uh, as well. And, and I, I, when I was coming up to talk to you about this, I, I asked a few people because I wanted to hear some new ones. And my friend uh, Vince Dittrick from Spirit of the West. Uh, drummer from that band talked to me, mentioned to me about Mushroom Studios. Now, Mushroom Studios is the old studio that, that right. many, uh, long-time studio in Vancouver Heart recorded, Dreamboat Annie there, Loverboy to Led Zeppelin recorded there, and, and local bands from 5440 to Mother Mother. Many people have been in that studio. It's called Afterlife Studios now, which is kind of uh, creepy enough as maybe <laughs> it is, <laughs> yeah. but uh, there there is apparently a, go- there was a ghost, a long-time ghost there. I'm not sure if it's still there, but in the Mushroom Studios days, uh, w- that was... Always uh, around, uh, and and the, it was a bit of a trickster ghost that would always take people's keys and put them in other parts of the studio. People who had their their house keys, their car keys in their in their briefcases or knapsacks, were often the keys were found. They had never touched them the whole time they were in the studio. They were they were they were found elsewhere in the studio, behind you know some gear or mm. or uh, on a shelf, just constant. And apparently, the the cleaning lady at Mushroom Studios had interacted with the ghost before and said it was a appeared to her as a as a a First Nations woman, uh, so all the more unique to to, to Vancouver in, in, in this sense. You know, that, that's really, so really interesting. interesting.
1: Yeah, because yeah. that's also more of a mischievous ghost. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Not just like a somebody who's going to appear and reappear, but where things go moving and missing. Well, that's oh, something completely yes. different.
3: Yeah, and, and believe me, I, I you know I know sometimes rock and rollers when they're making a record, of long hours are spent in the studio. Sometimes you got to uh, you have to double check these stories, but many people. Did talk about to me and and sent a word that confirmation that they had they had seen something or or they had heard something or their keys had been missing and then they found them later that day you know and they had never touched them halfway across the room so interesting interesting uh, haunted recorded studio here in Vancouver
1: yeah hey question now when we were in high school do you remember the ghost story about the house on the corner of Cambie and King Ed.
3: Oh, gosh, I, I, yeah, I remember hearing something about that. Yeah, that rings a bell.
1: Yeah, that one has always stuck with me, too, that everybody, there was always some really vague story about that house always being haunted. But tell me about one more good one that you can think of.
3: Sure. Well, I, I, you know, it's interesting that um, uh, we talked before the break about uh, that I had never seen a good, we haven't maybe felt things. Uh, my, a friend of mine lived in the Burnaby Apartments building down the west end at 1310 Burnaby, where uh, 61 years ago this month, Errol Flynn passed away. And we always thought if, if there was any the place that might be haunted with Errol Flynn's ghost, that must be it. And uh, so a friend of mine, who, as I say, lived there, we had a seance that night, hoping that we could evoke oh, the spirit of Errol Flynn. And I'm, I'm sorry to say the only spirits that were seen that night were the gin and vodka that we brought uh, to, uh, as a gift for <laughs> Errol. And, and uh, we were all haunted by the hangover the next morning from our little Halloween party. there. But uh, it, was, uh, it, we, we, we did, it wasn't for lack of trying but uh, there are yeah, there are stories of haunted houses that are all over the, the city in that regard and always makes me wonder you know when that, when the house is demolished or, or the or the occupants move if the ghosts go with them or not uh, or if there's a housing crisis for ghosts in Vancouver uh, and one along, along with everybody else having a hard time at some time
1: so with all these renovations you're saying like with the new condo buildings that go up are those new buildings haunted
3: exactly and the interesting thing is that that apparently the as far as real estate agents go if if they know the building is haunted, they do have to tell the, the prospective buyer
4: really? that it's
3: haunted. They, yes, they are supposed to say it, or if, a, if, let's say, a grisly crime, there was a murder there, or something ghoulish like that happened,
4: wow. that they're
3: supposed to, uh, they are supposed to divulge that information. But uh, whether they do or not, maybe, I don't know if it always happens that way, and sometimes people end up with a haunted house that they didn't expect.
1: All right, Aaron, thanks so much for the stories this morning.
3: Thanks. Happy Halloween,
1: Sarah. You too. That's Aaron Chapman, a local historian and author with some ghost stories. We were talking about the old spaghetti factory. Rod just emailed me to say, you know, that old spaghetti factory building in Gastown most likely has more than one ghost. He said, we used to live on the fifth floor and one spirit used to have a thing for my girlfriend. Her things kept getting moved around and he said, I would get blamed for it. She also always felt as though someone was watching her. And then they had a couple of two scary incidents where they just got freaked out and they moved shortly after. That would definitely do it for me, too. Listen, if you've got a ghost story, you can share it with us, simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, let's talk about how we can help out BC farmers, in this case, in particular, BC fruit growers, because it's been a tough year for them. And even, you know, with everything else that's going on, the cold snap also devastated some apple producers, in particular, in the Okanagan. So let's talk about what's been happening. Joining us is Warren Finchin, CEO of the BC Tree Fruits Cooperative. Warren, thank you for joining us.
6: Good morning how are you today
1: I'm good thank you. How are fruit growers in the province? How are those apple farmers?
6: they're having a tough go they're having a really tough go it's been uh, it's been a very challenging year as, as you just pointed out the you know we started off with um, uh, with our cherries the uh, we had you know some early freezing and, and cold temperatures and when it came to apple well then of course we, we all had uh, the covid uh, COVID nineteen situation. We had a uh, you know a very cloudy and rainy summer we had lots of hail and then just to top it off we you know over this past week we've had uh, we've had extremely cold temperatures and the most snow that we've seen in in october so it's it's been a really tough go but you know the one thing about farmers is they're they're an incredibly resilient uh, breed if you will and uh, you know <clears throat> the ones I talked to I've talked to to many growers and um, you know, they're not happy about the situation. They're, they're concerned. Um, but, but they'll get through it.
1: I guess part of the other challenge too, is that it's not for lack of customers, is it Warren? Like there's an awful lot of people who are going to like, they want to make sure they support BC producers.
6: Absolutely. I think, you know, I think shoppers and consumers are, are all about buying local and, you know, certainly there's the demand. Um, it's about having the product to be able to sell and that, uh, and that is, uh, that is creating some challenges. We were able to get, you know, a good percentage of our crop off, but that that remaining uh, fruit that's still sitting on the trees, we were, uh, we're trying to figure out what to do with it.
1: So is it fair to say that some of it won't get picked? And, and what was the reason for that? Could you not find enough mm-hmm. people?
6: No, so um, it, would, it would absolutely would be fair to say that some of that fruit will not be picked. Uh, in some cases, the fruit's damaged to the point where, uh, we w- we wouldn't want to uh, wouldn't want to ship it to the marketplace. Um, in other cases, you know, but we are working hard to, uh, to to maximize the amount of fruit that will uh, that will get picked.
1: Were there enough people employed this year? Like, were there enough people who stepped forward to say, "I'm willing to work on a fruit you know fruit farm"?
6: Uh, Labor has been a real challenge this year. Of course, with with COVID 19, we saw uh, some challenges getting the the same number of temporary foreign workers into to help out our farmers we have you know some some growers who have who've had the same uh, growers coming in from outside the country for for many years um unfortunately we didn't we didn't see the uh, the number of local uh and, and i say local even even people from other parts of canada who would who would traditionally uh come in from ontario uh, in quebec to help with the harvest we didn't see the same uh, the same uptake so i was talking to one grower in particular who actually had his kids out of school and had his kids and his wife um, picking apples to try to get as much off the trees as possible. And his wife actually made a comment that um, while they were picking, she, was, she herself was, uh, was blowing out the, irrig- the irrigation line. So, you know, families collectively have really had to, to, to step up um, in, in order to get as much food off, off the trees as possible.
1: Now, how much food do you think is actually going to waste here?
6: So we have about uh, 90% of our crop that we were able to harvest, and we're currently assessing how much of that remaining 10% we're going to we're going to be able to get in. There's uh, there's programs that we have that will that will help with that. Some of the uh, fruit that wouldn't sell as as fresh apples uh, can still go into juices, um, but I think there will be some some that uh, ultimately will not be uh, good for either juice or the fresh market. So we're um, as I say, we're currently assessing that, and we're trying to minimize it to the extent that we can.
1: Boy, Warren, it sure sounds like it was one thing after another for in 2020.
6: It really was. It really was. But, uh, but like I say, uh, these things happen in agriculture, and and uh, and ultimately, you know, it's our job to you know to figure out how to how to minimize the damage and, and maximize how much we can get out of out of the crop. And then, you know, we we look forward to uh, the next year, and, and most certainly, we certainly hope that we don't have the same challenges. That uh, that we face this year.
1: Now, how can the public help? I mean, I know we do a lot of buying BC, and we talk about that. But it, what more can we do?
6: I, I, you know, I think buying BC is 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 likely the single biggest thing that uh, that shoppers and consumers can do. Um, you know, now that we're through the harvest, if we were to encounter the same thing again, you know, certainly some additional arms and legs in the fields to uh, to help out would be appreciated. But hopefully, that's not the case. Hopefully. Uh, At this time next year, we're talking about a large, uh, high-quality crop that's all been harvested and and the returns have been high for, for our growers.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. Warren, thank you.
6: You're most welcome. Have a good day.
1: You too. That's Warren Serafinchin, who's the CEO of the B.C. Tree Fruits Cooperative. Boy, do those B.C. farmers need your help. So please make sure whatever produce you're buying, it is as local and says B.C. on it as possible, uh, because it sounds like apple farmers in particular need your help right now.